Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover today uh, in our continuing series through the book of Exodus. Uh, so hopefully you've been tracking with this. In my, week, in my email this week, I, I asked you all to consider reading Exodus 15, which is the prayer of, of Moses and Miriam at the end of the Red Sea crossing. Um, because today I, we're just going to touch on it, but I would love, if I ever send those things, it's for a reason, because I, just, I, I don't want us to miss something important, but it's also too much to try to cover, too much of a breath to try to cover in, in a talk on a Sunday morning. Um, I don't think you want me to go any longer than I normally do. Um, so today um, we're going to cover the, the greatest event, I think, that we would recognize in the book of Exodus, which is the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, by the Israelites after God sets them free. And what I want us to see today is that it is God who leads his people. It's God who fights for and defends his people. And it's God who delivers his people so that, in the end result, they can worship, which has been the goal all along, that they would be freed to serve God and to worship Yahweh instead of Pharaoh and the, the gods of, of Egypt. And so today in this narrative, uh, the overarching narrative here is that the, the children of Israel have been set free, the Passover has happened, and, and God leads the Israelites through this weird route that they wouldn't normally have taken, leads them on this weird route to where they're pinned up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh you know, gets together 600 chariots and all these chariots and all these, these warriors to go and pursue Israel because he feels like they're confused and lost in the desert, and why did we ever let them go in the first place? Let's go get them. And they're pinned against the Red Sea. And we see that God, after the people are freaking out, saying maybe it would have been better if we just died in Egypt, God delivers them by parting the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, and they cross it, and God brings the waters back in on top of the Egyptians, and they're all killed, and the Israelites are set free, and they become a people, I would argue. This is the birth of their nation right here. And then they worship God in response. And so I'm just going to cherry pick some verses along the way in that narrative. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Exodus 13. First thing we're going to see here is that it is God, it is Yahweh himself who is leading the people in this, this dynamic way. He says, um, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to lead them on their way during the day, and in a pillar of fire to give them light at night, so that they could travel day or night. The pillar of the cloud by day and the pillar of the fire by night never left its place in front of the people. There's a sense in the Hebrew that they're saying God would not budge. So here you have have the stubbornness of Pharaoh in the background, right? And now you've got God, the stubborn one, who, who will not budge from leading his people in this divine pillar of of cloud or fire, um, guiding them by day and by night. But what's interesting is he he doesn't lead them in a way that they would have picked. He doesn't lead them in a way that that was the predictable way that they would have gone, the easier way. If you go back to verse 17, you see it says, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them along the road to the land of the Philistines, which would have been more directly north along the coast even though it was nearby. For God said, the people will change their minds and return to Egypt if they face war. So instead, God leads them to where they end up camped along the Red Sea. 
They're now pinned in against the Red Sea. He doesn't lead them the easy route that they would have gone up along the coast because God says, I know what they would have done. They would have turned tail and ran when they realized they had to get into hand-to-hand combat with the small Philistine army that was there. So if you're as old as me, my dad was a truck driver, okay? If you're as old as me, you remember using an atlas. Thank you, right? You, you like, or MapQuest. You had to print something out ahead of time, get in your car, and then drive with a printout of like seven pages of where you're going with a, like a co-pilot, like you're a rally car driver, telling you where to go. And that was it. You looked at point A, point B, found the main highway, and you took it. And that's where you went. And so now we live in this world where uh, it's wonderful. Yesterday we, we took a trip somewhere, and it, and it diverted me because the GPS, like Waze was like, no, no, go this way. It's better because there's snow on this mountain. You want to go this way. If there's an accident, go this way. But see, these people in this day, they're like, the atlas says go this way. Like, we're going this way, north. That is the way out of Egypt. That's the way we're going to go. And God, as the good but confusing GPS that he is, says, no, no, no. Actually, I know something that you don't know. I know more than you. I know what's ahead, so I'm going to bring you this way instead. This unexpected route that he brings them. He knows something that they don't, and he leads them to where they are now up against and camping by the Red Sea. See, God's leading, as we'll see, includes his wisdom for our good. And the path that we would pick, the path that I would pick regularly, isn't necessarily the best plan. And God knows this. God knows this about these people. Because the way that they would have picked actually would have been the worst. How often do we do that to ourselves, right? Hindsight shows that to us. We're like, man, I really forced my way into this way, and that actually turned out bad. See, God is bringing them in this this unexpected route because he knows better than they do. And it leads them to great fear. Because they get pinned up against the Red Sea in this unexpected route, a way that they wouldn't have picked. They get pinned up against the Red Sea, and Pharaoh sends his army out against them. And now they're trapped, totally trapped, against the water on one side, the world's largest army and most powerful army on the other side. No place to go. And they complain to Moses, and they're saying, did you bring us out here to die? Which is a refrain that they'll offer regularly to him throughout the book of Exodus and Numbers, we'll see. Would have been better if we had just died in Egypt. Now they're coming at us with swords. See, there's an identity thing that's happening here where they're starting to think maybe the gods of Egypt are more powerful than our God. Like, how could they possibly think that, we would ask, right? After everything they've seen in the plagues. We do the same thing. We would have done the same thing. But in their identity, they're not sure if their God is more powerful than the gods of Egypt and more powerful than Pharaoh, and it's setting up this this battle that's going to happen. And, and, And they're pinned against the Red Sea, and they don't know what they're going to do, and they're crying out to Moses, and he goes to God and... But it looks really bad. This is not what they would have picked. It would have been better if we had just gone the other way. We should have just gone to the north. We should have just gone and fight, fought the Philistines. But here's what's interesting. God didn't lead them that way. He didn't lead them the way that they would have had to fight. He led them the way that he would have to fight. You understand this? The way that they would have picked, like, we'll go this way, we'll fight, we'll do it. He knows you would have gotten scared and left. You would have gone back to Egypt. 
but I'm going to lead you the way in which I'm going to fight. I'm going to take this upon myself to fight for you. And he does this unexpected thing for them. And so we see as the story goes on, in a route that they wouldn't have picked, pinned up against the Red Sea, that, that God comes to their rescue. That God stands in their place, that he fights for them and defends his people. Pharaoh and his whole army pursue them. All these chariots, all these warriors could pursue them right up against the Red Sea. And what we see is that God is actually setting up an ambush for Pharaoh. He's, he's tricking him into this place where he's like, ha see, I've got the Israelites. And God's like, actually, I've got you. Because I'm more powerful than you and can do things that you never realized. And the people are bugging out, freaking out. They're caught in between. Like, what in the world? Death in front of us, death behind us. What do we do? They go to Moses and they're screaming at Moses. And this is what Moses says to them. But Moses said to the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm and see the Lord's salvation that he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you must be quiet. It's a little firmer in the Hebrew. It's like, just, you need to shut up. You need to stand still and be quiet. The Lord will fight for you. What is God like? What is this story telling us that Yahweh is like? What is it telling us that people are like? That Israelites, that the people of God are like? Moses tells the people, do not be afraid. But really what he's telling them is God is more worthy to fear than what you're fearing right now. That God is bigger than your fears. That God is more powerful than the army. He's more powerful than even the Red Sea. And he's offering them a new identity statement, right? He's offering them a new identity saying, do you not see it? Do you not believe? Have you not experienced enough to see that God is more powerful? Just be quiet. Let God fight for you. And the texts tell us that this pillar of fire and this pillar of cloud moves from out in front of them, it moves to behind them and puts a separation between them and the Egyptians, which is a term we see all throughout the Old Testament, that God is like a, a shield all around us, and they're saying, the, the, the writers say, and it's God moves behind them to protect them. And God is, through Moses, telling them, just be still. Just be still. How hard is that for us to do? I am a planner. I am a strategizer. Like, it is hard for me to just, just to slow down and say, okay, God, you do something. How hard is that for you? I like, I like, I hear really hard. Right, (laughs) right. Particularly as Western American thinkers with money, we think we can just do it. I just have to do it all. I'm just going to take it on myself, and I'm going to figure it out. And oftentimes, regularly in Scripture, it's like, slow down and breathe. Slow down and let God be God. This is what our God is like. And he moves from in front of the people 
to behind them. And he sets up this wall between them and the Egyptians who are moving in on them to destroy them. Now they're probably like, okay, great. Now there's a fire back there, people with swords beyond that, and the sea of reeds in front of us. Now what, God? Now what? We're standing here, we're being quiet, probably shaking. Now what? Then the angel of God who was going in front of the Israelite forces moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and Israelite forces. There was cloud and darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. Earlier, God had told him, raise up your staff. Remember the staff that he'd used to do the miracle of turning it into a snake, and it ate the Egyptian wizard's snakes, right? He says, take that very staff, raise it up. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove the sea back with a powerful east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen, they went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve or to to break off and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Remember what God has been saying all along. Egypt will know. Egypt will know. Pharaoh will know that I am God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. But the Israelites had walked through the sea on dry ground and the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. God says, just be quiet. Just let me fight for you and then follow my lead. Follow my lead. And God opens up this path in front of him and now they know where they have to go. And I was imagining this that doesn't say this, I'm just trying to imagine this scene in which the the fire that was out in front of them is now way at the back. And if you're in the front, it's scary out there. You're like, okay, I guess I'm the first one. Like, here we go. Like, into the Sea of Reeds we go. What a wild experience this must have been. But it it reminded me of, I mean, how many plots of books and movies and stories do we know where the, where the hero says, just be quiet and stay here. I'll go handle this. I'll go take care of it. We Here we have our God as the hero saying, just be still. Just stand here. I'll go handle it. And he blows open the sea of reeds and they're able to walk across it. And he holds the Egyptians back for long enough that they can get a head start. And they start walking across this thing. God 
fights for his people. Pastor Adam and I were talking this week about how this, this reminds us of that song from like maybe it was the early 90s, God Will Make a Way When There Seems to Be No Way. Anybody remember that? If you grew up in the church, it's been like stuck in my head all week now. You can look up a cheesy YouTube video of it if you want. God will make a way. Okay. Anyway, it's just stuck in my head because God, our God, is, has the ability to make a way where there seems to be no way. He might bring us in, in, a, in a path that we would have never picked. That you would never pick, that I would never pick, to where we get to this place where it seems like, okay, now I'm trapped. God, thanks a lot. And he says, just trust me. Just trust me. And God can do these things that were totally unexpected, things that we never would have dreamed of, that we never would have thought, oh, I didn't, I didn't imagine that that would be a way out of this situation. Or I didn't know that you were trying to help me avoid that thing over there. Do you know how many plans I've had in my life that I'm like, this seems really good to me. I'm going to go and do that. And God restrains it for happening for some reason. And then later I'm like, man, thank God. Thank God I avoided that. And God fights for his people and delivers them. He leads them. He does battle for them. And he delivers them in a way that they just couldn't have imagined. And here we have Israel, the chosen son the chosen son of God, still having to pass through the waters though, right? Still going through what is a really scary experience, a surreal experience, a totally wild divine miracle happening. And they're still called to go through the waters. God blowing on them and separating them apart. And scholars point out that there's a lot of creation language worked into this here. And here you have God again, creating things with his breath separating the land and the water and a new people being born out of it. This people of Israel being formed into a nation as they walk through it. See, water in the Old Testament is often seen as this like chaotic, scary darkness. And people were terrified of it. And here you have God's having power over it and separating it and saying, I'm going to make dry land for you to walk through this. I'm going to give you a new way out of this. And God separates the water, and he separates, I would argue, death from life. And he separates the the water to one side, the death on one side, and the life and the land on another. And he separates the death of of Egypt on one side, and he brings Israel through in life, and he's he's separating them. And this water, this, this, this scary place, this chaotic mess, this darkness, actually becomes a place of salvation. For them. Do you see it? Through God's power, what was sure to be certain death becomes life for them. They're saved through it. So in some sense, this Red Sea becomes a source of salvation for the Israelites, for the chosen one, for the, for the son of God here, the chosen son. Well, at the same time, it's a place of judgment. You see it? It's a place of judgment for Egypt because they enter into it and it closes back in on them and they're they're covered with death. So it's a place of salvation. It's an event of salvation for the Israelites, but it's an event of death for the Egyptians. It's an event of judgment for Pharaoh. God of life saves his children and Pharaoh succumbs to death and judgment. And God uses the the very thing that Pharaoh thought would trap them and kill them, he uses it, he flips it, and he uses it to destroy Pharaoh. He uses it to do business with the enemy of God, with the opposition of the people of God. And you have this salvation and this judgment happening in the same place, in 
the Red Sea. And it's like a baptism of sort. That these people go through the water and come out the other side, a new people. The song of Moses and Miriam is filled with this language of like, man, we're a people now. We're God's people. God did that thing. He brought us through that place of salvation and judgment. And now we are a new people, baptized into his family, as it were. Baptized into being this new nation. And what stands out to me and is fascinating to me is that in all these things, God is not a warrior with a sword. You see it? It happens through a shepherd's staff. Moses, the the deliverer of God, the shepherd, just points his staff at the water and God brings deliverance for them. The staff of the shepherd, not the sword, delivers. So often, at least to me it seems, so often Christians feel like it's their job to raise up a sword and fight for God. And here we have God say, no, I got it. And he uses a shepherd's staff to lead the people into salvation through judgment and into salvation. See, we, we often, if you're like me, we often want our deliverance in life to be easy. We want life to just be expected. Like we want everything to just go as expected, to go as we've planned out. We want life to be easy. We want our deliverance in God to be easy. And, and, and often we, we want to be warriors or we want God to show up like a sword-wielding warrior who's going to defeat all the bad guys violently. Or we, we try to find our deliverance through our own effort, whether it's through human efforts or through religious, self-righteous, legalistic efforts, trying to find our deliverance. And so much of what we've seen of Again, I would argue Christianity in this country over the last 20 years has been, we want an easy deliverance, we want to be warriors, and we're really (laughs) self-righteous. And God says, that is not how it is in my kingdom. In my kingdom, we're led by the shepherd. By the shepherd's staff, not by the sword. Who might lead you in unexpected ways but he will fight for you. He will defend you. Just stand still. Follow my lead. Friends, God, this is the gospel for us today, friends, is that God delivers the people. He is the deliverer. Jesus is is our good shepherd who makes a way, an unexpected way for his people. He's the kind and gentle and meek shepherd who didn't come to slash people with a sword. He came as a shepherd to lead the sheep that hear his voice. He says, follow me, follow me. And Jesus goes all the way to the cross, which is the ultimate Red Sea, is it not? The place of, of judgment and salvation, both happening there on the cross. And this, this thing that was meant to be death And traps Jesus there actually becomes salvation for those who trust in him. 
comes the new life for them. And the people who believe in it are said to have been baptized into his death, Paul says in Romans 6. The people who trust in Jesus says, you've been baptized into my death so that you can be raised with me in resurrection. So when we believe in Jesus, we go to the cross and we say, okay, I'm passing through the death into the salvation. The cross is this, the greatest Red Sea of all times, this place of salvation and the place of judgment on humanity. But when Jesus, we pass through the death into salvation, into new life. I was reading this morning, I don't know if any of you bought the, the Lent reader that I suggested, but I was reading this morning from a woman, woman named Edna Hong, who I'd never heard of, but she talked about the, the downward ascent of the gospel. The downward ascent of the gospel. That in the gospel, we regularly choose death to self, but in it is salvation. That it's this downward ascent through judgment into salvation that we take on through the baptism of Jesus when we become followers of him. That God delivers us through judgment and into salvation. We see that God fights for his people. Friends, God calls us to battle against the enemy of sin. That language comes out in the New Testament. Battle against Satan, the flesh, the world, the, 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 the temptations of the world. Not the world, but battling against the temptations of the world. And he says, yes, you're going to need to do business with those. He says, but it's going to be energized by me. That I've already defeated these on your behalf. Be motivated by the gospel to then do business with them. See, it's not like we would expect. We expect that it's going to be through our striving, through our self-effort and all these things we have to do to get right with God. And he says, I've already made you right in me. Live into the truth of that. Believe that. Allow that to affect you, this, you know, th- today, every day. Allow it to make you new every day, believing it more and more of God's love for you and allowing that to motivate you into choosing righteous living, not self-righteous living, choosing into righteous living, silently with our eyes on God, knowing what he achieved in the Red Sea of the cross, knowing that he is all-powerful and over all things, knowing our identity is in him, and following him one day at a time, increasing in righteousness and light as we go, because he has already won the battle on our part. We simply need to follow him forward. So if you're like me, you say, okay, well, that, okay, Jim, I, I believe you. I'm called to follow God. Great. Do I get a pillar of fire? Is there, is there a cloud that I get to look at and follow? Because that would be really easy, right? Wouldn't that be great? Or like, just tell me what to do. Make it, make it really clear, God. Psalm 119 is a Famous verse. It says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path or a light to my path. So, yeah, we don't normally have the divine occurrence of a cloud of fire to guide us around. But the scriptures are pretty clear, though, that, that God's word is meant to illuminate is meant to to guide us. Every decision you're going to make, 
is not covered explicitly in here. Who to date, who to marry, what to do with your finances, what school to go to. Like, none of that. What job to take, should I take the promotion, should I not? It doesn't say, it doesn't cover that in here. Yet, it's light to our path. That God's word does illuminate Your word is a lamp on my feet, a light to my path. But more than just the written scriptures, who do these point to? Point to Jesus. They point to the living word. Not just the written word. Incredibly important. But it points to the living word of Jesus. Points to the gospel points to the person of Christ. And so we read scriptures looking for God's wisdom, looking for the person of Jesus and saying, okay, I will follow you. I will do my best to understand what it is that you're calling me to, knowing that I might make mistakes. I don't know, but God, you love me. You've proven that. One step at a time, one day at a time. A light to my path. We need community to do this. This is why we read scripture together. Go to church together, be in community group together to say, what's God calling us to? What's he calling me to in my life? What do the scriptures say running it through there? How does this glorify Jesus? How does this look like Jesus? Okay, one step at a time in ways that might be unexpected, things that you never thought of. But I would argue that in so doing, it leads us to full life. Trusting the shepherd to lead us into full life through his word, through his speaking in our prayers, through his speaking to us in community, leading us into full life. Not necessarily easy, not predictable. We will have Red Sea moments, for sure, or stuck up against something going, holy cow, now what? Now what, God? Now what? Now what, community? Now what, scripture? Speak to me. And God says, I'll fight for you. I'll deliver you. And so God does this incredible deliverance for the people of Israel, leading them through the baptism in the place of salvation and judgment. They come out the other side, birthed into being a new people, owned by God, fashioned by God, formed by God, led by God, and God will continue to lead them to the place of giving them a new covenant at Mount Sinai, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But as they are blown away by what God has just done, 400 years of of living in Egypt comes crashing back down on the Egyptians. Their slavery over, their Pharaoh, the God who they had been forced to worship, crushed, killed, drowned. And they stand on the shores and, and, and says that Moses just sings this song, just pours out worship to God saying, I cannot believe that you did that, that you provided for us in that way. We never would have picked it, but I'm so glad that you did it. It says, when Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant Moses. The people fear the Lord, they revere the Lord, and they believe in the Lord, and they believe in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. That's a refrain you see all throughout the Psalms. The Lord is my strength and my song. 
He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. Man, that's why we're here, friends, on a Sunday morning. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Again, in the Hebrew, the language there in the beginning is actually kind of like water. He says, God surged. Surge, O God. I will highly exalt you. This is my God, and I will praise him. Friends, this is the reaction to the gospel. And Dennis and I talked this week in, in even preparing the exercise of raising our hands and saying, I won't ever stand up here and say, you should. You ought to. But I will say we get to. We get to. We get to look at the place of salvation and judgment on the cross of Jesus and then say, hallelujah. Not what I would have expected, not what I would have picked. But thank you, God. This is my God, and I will praise him. This is what it means to worship. This is what it means to live a life of worship, is daily saying, whoa, God, you're in charge, not me. You're God, and I'm not, and I'm grateful for that today. Not just on a Sunday, every other day after. You're God, I'm not. Thank you for the rescue that you've given me. We see in this story, and we see in the cross of Jesus and in his resurrection, that our God will go to extraordinary measures for his people. That our God will lead us through his word, through community, following the spirit, through the living Christ. And we worship that he will fight for us, and we worship that he will deliver us, and we worship, and it becomes a testimony to one another, testimony to our own souls, a testimony to the world. Friends, this is how we change the world, not through being warriors with swords, but through worshiping the shepherd. Let's pray.